0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God. Let's give thanks to him and pray. Lord, how we thank you for your kindness and your love and your grace. Thank you that you have spoken the final word over us. Nothing shall separate us from your love. Lord, this morning, I know that there are some here who have come and they don't feel this, Our our hearts are burdened, We, we hear the words of our accuser, we struggle with this reality. So Lord, this morning, would your spirit take your word and cleanse us, press home these truths to our lives, give us the solid assurance of your love for us, so that we may walk in your ways, that we may enjoy you that we might worship you and celebrate you with all that we are. We thank you when we pray now that you would help us by your spirit. We ask this together in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever thought about what the implications of love on your life are? When you think about what it means that someone loves you, what implications come out of that? What, what realities flow from, from that truth, from that beautiful reality that you are loved? What does it have to do with, with your heart and your life? When you think about it, what happens when you're loved by a royal person? I think we have some examples of this lately in the last few years, the last half decade or so. You think about Meghan Merkel, the actress Hollywood actress, and, and yet she falls in love with, and he falls in love with her, Prince Henry of, of the United Kingdom, and, and he sets his love on her. He proposes to her. He marries her. And what changes, what are the implications of his love being set on her that come out in her life? Well, she resigns her acting actress career, probably temporarily, but she resigns that and, and gets married and moves to the United Kingdom. She, she takes up a title, She's now a princess. She has a a public life and public obligations and uh, realities to be a part of, public meetings and, and pressures that are there. Everything in her life changed the moment she said yes to Prince Henry because he had set his love on her. I wonder if we would think about it in the same way. I know that, that we don't often think about ourselves as royalty, and, and maybe perhaps we don't always have the vision of God as, as royalty. It's hard for us as Americans who vote every four years on a, on a different leader to conceive of this kind of truth, but what would it be? What would it mean for us? What would the implications be for us if we really took hold of the fact that God loves us? I mean, what would that truth that God loves you, truly do, in your heart and in your life. If God loves you, so what? What does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me in our lives? We're concluding our series here in Romans 8 this morning. And and Paul, he's not talking about the football game yesterday when he says, what then shall we say to these things? Although they're very good things to say about them. He's thinking about what has been what he's been saying in the entirety of this letter to this point. This passage comes as the great crescendo. It is it is one of the high points, in the highest of points in the entire book of Romans here. And he's saying, if you look at the reality of God's love for you and for me, what do we say to that? What does that mean for our lives? If God loves you, what does that do? in your heart and your life. The question could be if, if the teaching of Romans 5 through 8, which we've been looking at over this last fall, is really true, then what does that mean for you and for me? Let me just recap for you briefly here this morning the last 12, 13 weeks of teaching that we've had here on Sunday mornings. It, Paul has declared to us that being justified by God, being declared righteous in his sight by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which re, we receive by faith, We are at peace with God. No longer any war. The weapons have been set down. We are at peace with God. And and furthermore, we have access with Him. We're, We're placed in a completely different realm, a realm of grace. No longer in death, but now in His love and in His grace, He sets His affection on us. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we have a new position we're no longer in Adam, no longer under the condemnation of God, no longer under his wrath. But we now stand in Christ, his beloved son. We are united with Christ by faith. What is true of Christ is true of you and me. What belongs to Christ belongs to you and me. We have a new position in him. And being united with Christ, Paul teaches, means that we see sin as no longer over us. Sin no longer has dominion or ultimate power in our lives. We are not slaves to sin anymore. We are freed in God's love by his son. We are now living under grace, not under the law. And because we are living now under God's grace, because we have been freed from the power and the shackles of sin, we have power, God's power working within us to change and to grow. We can actually say no to our sinful lives. We can say no to temptation. And we can say yes to obedience in God. We have power to grow and change. And furthermore, as he moves into Romans 8, he says now, because of God's grace and because we are united with Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no word of judgment, no condemnation. God is not looking down his nose at us, ready to stamp us out at any given moment. He sees us with love and affection. He smiles on us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, the Spirit of God indwells us. He lives within us and he gives us life. He brings to our minds and, re- and recollection that we are adopted children of the Father. We belong to him. We're part of his family. We're loved. And even as we go through suffering and affliction and tribulations in this world that make us groan and make the world groan, there the Spirit of God is within us interceding and praying for us, groaning with us as it were, reminding us he loves us, and and telling us that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even so much so that he will ultimately get us home. Those who he foreknew he predestined, and those he predestined he called, and those he called he justified, and those he justified he gets home. He glorifies going to make it. All of this is the outpouring of God's love for us. It's his magnificent grace in our lives that not a single one of us deserve, not a single one of us can earn, not a single one of us are worthy of, and yet God in his kindness pours out his love to us in Christ Jesus. We're loved. We're going to get to glory. And so now we can say, what then shall we say to all these things? The question is, what impact does it have in our lives? Because God loves us. What is true there? Well, this is where Paul builds this crescendo in, in verses 31 to 39. And he says, I want to show you what impact this has in your life. I want to show you the implications of this for you. I want you to have, this morning, as it were, three, three answers Three answers that when your life feels like a big question mark, when you don't know what to do, I want you to turn and look to the love of God and to see what that means for you so that as you walk in him, you will be confident, you will stand assured. I want you to see the implications of God setting his love on you. I'll put it like this. If God loves you, then so what? Let me show you three things here. First of all, if God loves you, then who can be against us? Who can be against us? That's the first question that Paul asks. The answer is no one. No one. Look with me at verse 31 here. What then shall we say to all these things? This magnificent love of God, this this freeing, saving grace of his poured out to us in his son. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, Paul asks the question, if God is for us, and he's supposing a positive answer, Paul is seeing this in light of the best realities. This is true of us. It's so true. God is for us, and he is for us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And think about this. If, if God is for you, this is his positive disposition, his grace towards his people, his covenant love that he sets on you. To put it this way, if, if God has given you the ring and said, you are mine, th- then, then he's for us. His love is towards us. There is no doubt offered here. Paul's not saying, well, maybe God might be for you. He's like, no, with confidence, with assurance. If God's for you, then you have him in your corner. If he's for you, who who can be against us? Who can defeat you? Who can defeat God? Right? When When you think about it that way, is there any power greater than God? Is there any force that could stand against him? Can any enemy overcome and defeat him? Can anyone push back his will? If God wants to do it, he does it. His ways are higher than ours. Paul's asking the question, with God on our side, can anyone else ever, ever win? The answer here is a rhetorical question. It's obviously no one. If God's for us, the greatest of the universe, the highest being in all things, the creator, if he is for us, there's not one thing that can be against us. No one. They may try their worst. They may throw their arrows. They may hate with a deep hatred. There may be infliction of pain and suffering and agony, but no one can stand against us if God is for us. If he has set his love on us, we're loved by the greatest being in the universe. No one can conquer him. Think about what Paul said just a little bit ago in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Even with evil opposing us, it doesn't matter. God's taking those evil, hard, painful things, and he's working them and bending them for our ultimate good. He's shaping them for us. Leon Morris, a New Testament commentator, puts it like this, with God for us, it makes not the slightest particle of difference who is against us. doesn't matter. They don't hold a candle to who Christ is. Now, where is this affirmation rooted? Why can Paul say this? If God is for us, who can be against us? His answer is in verse 32. In verse 32, Paul answers from the greatest to the least, or from the hardest to the easiest. He's helping us think through this. If God does the harder thing first for us, then think about how easy it is for him to do the lesser thing for us. Here he says this. If he, he, God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's the greater thing, that's the harder thing, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now here's a proclamation of the good news of the gospel. God has given us his son. He didn't spare his son. No, he he gave him up for us all. He's pointing to the cross. Where the father sent the son, Jesus Christ, for us and our salvation. He put on flesh and blood and became a man and lived perfectly among us. We've seen his glory, glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He came and lived a perfect, sinless life on our behalf. And then he went to the hill of Golgotha, and he died on the cross for our sins. He laid down his life for us. God gave him up for us all. Harder thing. If that's the harder thing for God to do, think about the easier thing. How will he not also with him graciously give us All things. The reality of this has been stated earlier in Romans 5. God shows his love, he demonstrates his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, What what Paul's saying here is if if we think about, let's just take Abraham, for instance, taking Isaac up the mountain of sacrifice, their God intervened and stayed Abraham's hand. He didn't sacrifice his son. But yet, when the father sent his son, and led Christ up the Mount of Calvary, he didn't stay his hand. Christ was slaughtered as a sacrifice for our sins. Christ took the wrath of God on our behalf so that we would never have to taste the wrath of God. Jesus experienced God against us so that we would always experience God for us. That's a harder thing, and God has done that. So with the easier thing, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? And what do the all things encompass here? If we are in Christ, anything that is true of Christ is true of us. Anything that belongs to Christ belongs to us. All things, all things, we are co-heirs with Christ. All these spiritual blessings and gifts are for us in Christ. There is nothing that he won't give to us for our eternal good because he's already given his greatest and his best. God has already given us his son, Christ Jesus. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. He's shown us his great and penetrating and powerful love. This is how I think about it. Christmas is coming up and, and you know that kids are looking forward to uh, like a great toy. I mean, our kids want to have an awesome Christmas and there are toys in their mind that they're thinking about that they hope show up under the tree. Maybe there's some child in your life that's already asking for some super great, but, but frankly expensive toy, right? They're, they're already out there and thinking about that. Well, let's imagine you went out and you bought that for them today. You went to the store and you got that great gift. And then you read on the box, just as you were taking it out of the store, you kind of pulled it out of the bag, and you saw on the box a little statement that said something like this, batteries not included. Now, you've already paid expensive money. You've given out a lot of money for that great expensive gift. What's going to keep you from buying the $2 batteries that are going to make it run? Nothing, Unless you're cheap. Nothing. God's not cheap. You go and you get those batteries. You supply them. And the joy of that child just flowers and blossoms in front of you when they open it. Now Think about this. God has done the greater thing for us in giving his son. He does the lesser thing for us in giving us, in Christ, all things freely. What a powerful reality. He didn't spare his son, but he gave us up. He gave him up for us all. And so he'll graciously, freely give us all things. God's heart is inclined to you. For every Christian here today, God is positively for you. He's for you if you've trusted him. No one can stand against God. No one has a chance of turning his affections away from you. He did the greater thing by giving up his son. He'll do the lesser, easier thing by giving us all we need and abundantly so much more. Friends, when you find yourself doubting his love or questioning his goodness, towards you in a moment of pain, remember what he gave up for you. Remember he sent the Son for you. Remember he demonstrated his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. You can look headlong into the eyes of your opposition, headlong into the eyes of Satan himself and remind him that since God is for you, and he is, the death of Christ proves that to you. It's your evidence Nothing our enemy throws at you has ultimate harm. God is for us. Who can be against us? What good news. To answer that doubt, to answer that question, does God love me? What are the implications of that? The world is against me. So what? God is for you. God is for you. God loves you. No one can be against you. Secondly, if God loves you, then who will bring a charge against us? Who will accuse us? The answer? Again, no one, no one at all. Verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring, Paul is just asking these rhetorical questions. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Rhetorical question. Again, the answer is no one. It's it's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Again, the answer, no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Paul here takes us into the courthouse. He takes us into the courtroom. We stand as a defendant. And there's the prosecutor, Satan, and he is just bellowing out accusation against us. He is just telling us again and again, you're a sinner. You don't deserve God's love. You deserve his wrath. You deserve death God should hate you. I hate you. He just accuses us. remember that time you did that? Remember that dirty thought last week? You remember yesterday you said this about that person? You remember how you've been cheating off the top of your business? Yeah, I know all that stuff too. You're guilty. You're guilty. And that's what Satan cries out against us. It's the charges that come. But Paul here asks a different question. Who really has the power to charge us? Who really has the ability to to bring with lasting impact and reality those accusations against us? Nobody. Why? Why? Because God is the one who justifies. The charges come, but they don't stick. They have no place and they have no power because God is the one who justifies. That is, He is the one who declares us righteous. He is the one who makes us righteous by the gift of Christ's righteousness for us. Paul here is showing us that while we may sit in the defendant's seat, God sits in the seat of the judge. He is the one who declares. And his verdict over us is not guilty. His verdict over us is you are righteous because he sees the righteousness of Christ in us. And if God makes that declaration, who can revoke it? Who can pull it away? When we think, okay, a declaration is one thing, but but my heart condemns me, I know that Satan's telling the truth. I hear those accusations and I know I'm a sinner. I condemn myself. I feel condemned. Paul asks a question, who should truly condemn us? And again the, again, the answer is no one. If there's anyone out there who should condemn us, it should be Christ. But Paul points us to the reality of what Christ has done. Christ doesn't condemn you. Christ Jesus is the one who died. He died for your sins. More than that, he was raised. He conquered Satan's sin and death on the cross And he was raised to life again. He conquered death. More than that, he was vindicated. He's now seated at the right hand of God. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed now is interceding for us. There Jesus Christ is, before the throne of the judge of the universe, before the throne of God, pleading and praying positively on our behalf, telling the judge, They're forgiven, they're cleansed, they're not guilty because of what I have done. Jesus Christ praying for us. If Christ isn't condemning us, no one can condemn us, not even ourselves. Any other condemnation that we feel is utterly weak and ineffective, any other finger-pointing, Bearing us down. It's wrong. It's gone. We are utterly secure in the love of God because Christ has loved us and has given himself for us. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. Who can condemn us? No one. Why? Because God loves us and he's given himself for us. Paul's point here is that the declaration of the judge is authoritative, a declaration and verdict stands. When you think about it, the higher in rank a judge is, the more weight and authority their verdicts carry. So if the Supreme Court in the United States decides a a criminal case and says that someone is not guilty, there's no accusation in the land that can hold up against that. Go far greater here, though. The eternal judge of the universe looks at you with love. And he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, gifted to you. And he declares you guilty, or not guilty, innocent, completely free, loved. You're his. He's declared you righteous. No little word. That's all these words of accusation and condemnation are. They're just these little chirping words that mean nothing. They're not for us. Christ is the one who has freed us. He is the one who's atoned for our sin. If he's died for your sin, he's not going to turn around and condemn you for your sin. There is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me, let me just give you a practical point of application here. When, when you're discouraged by Satan's lies, when he comes and he accuses you, he threatens you, he slings his arrows at you of condemnation and accusation, look at him in the face and tell him off. Tell him, yes, Christ died for sinners, and that's me. He died for me. I like how Martin Luther put it. When the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner, therefore you are damned, then we can answer him and say, because you say that I'm a sinner, therefore I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And no, I say, for I take refuge in Christ, who has given himself for my sins. Friends, tell the devil he's wrong Point to the cross of Christ. Run to the refuge that you have in him. You are loved. You are righteous in Christ. You are protected in Christ. You are secured in Christ. No one can bring any charge against you. You're so secure in God's love. If God loves you, no one can be against you. If God loves you, no one can charge or accuse or condemn you. Thirdly, if God loves you, then who shall separate us from Christ's love? The answer is no one and nothing. Final verses of this chapter, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to separate us from his love? If he's given himself for us, If he's justified us, if he's declared us righteous, if we have peace with him, then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, the reality is that Paul knows how hard life on this earth is. He knows how painful things are, and he starts speaking about these things. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that because life is hard, because there's suffering and affliction in our lives, because there's physical illness, because there's poverty, because there's brokenness and sin... That somehow or another, those circumstances means God's turned his back on us. Or or that somehow, we we believe some sort of cosmic karma. We've we've done bad, now we're going to get bad. That's what we have coming for us. And so we look at these afflictions and these trials and say, well, obviously I'm a bad person, God doesn't love me today, so that's for me, I've got to improve myself. Here's the answer to this biblically. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let's just think about these answers. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, this is the hard, oppressive stuff of life. Do they mean that, that God doesn't love us? Some of you think that God only loves the winners, that he only likes people that are tough and that they stand up for themselves and that they get what they want. God doesn't have any losers on his team. He only has winners. And so when affliction and hardship comes, that means you're a loser, right? Right? God has no losers on his team. That's the lie from the pit of hell. God loves losers. The distress and the tribulation and the hardship of this life aren't evidence against us. There are indicators that God's love has turned away from us. Not one affliction or hardship or thing on this earth that exposes itself in our lives is evidence that God's love has been removed from us. In fact, it may be quite the opposite. We are to expect and experience these things as Christians. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword separate us from the love of God? No. In fact, verse 36, as it is written, here's the experience of the Christian life for your sake. For God's sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul here's quoting Psalm 42, 22. You're just saying the expectation of the Christian life is a life that will carry suffering for the sake of Jesus' name. And when it does, we don't look at those things as evidences of God's hand against us. We see those things as God's work in us, even in the midst of all those things. We haven't been separated from his love, verse 37. No, in all these things, in all these tribulations, trials, persecutions, danger, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The sufferings of this life aren't evidence of God's love against us. They're displays of his love for us. They don't show loss and defeat. They show, in fact, that we are overcomers. Because his love has been set on us, when the danger comes, when the distress comes, when the suffering comes, we can overcome through that. They show that we are victors, by the way, this is biblical evidence that God is a University of Michi- Michigan fan. It's the Greek word there. In fact, there's, <laughs> some of you are just getting it. Yeah, yeah. There's just one Greek word here in this phrase, more than conquerors. It's the word hypernikao. It's a superlative. It means abundantly, higher than anything, super conquering. Or as one lexicon says, to prevail completely. Here's a, an incredible gift. When we face these afflictions and trials and sufferings, in Christ we conquer. We conquer the very things that would defeat us and would bring us down. They don't destroy us or dismantle us. Through Christ we overcome them. I think about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10 through about his own life. We have this treasure in jars of clay that this, to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Through Jesus, his victory is our victory. We're united to him, so everything that is true of him is true of us. Everything that belongs to him belongs to us. But here's the point. We conquer by the God who loves us. So yes, you may have affliction and suffering and hardship in your life. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you. He's showing and working through you to conquer by hanging on to his love. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I want you to get it in your heart and your mind. God is not a bandwagon fan towards you. A bandwagon fan is somebody who supports the team when they're winning, they're doing well. They're in their corner when when things are on the up and up and when championships are rolling in and it's positive and good. Bandwagon fans wear their colors when the wins happen. but When the losses come, when the hard things show up, bandwagon fans disappear. They don't support anymore. They talk about other things. They're with other teams. God isn't that way with you. He doesn't jump on the bandwagon when you're doing well, when you're living right, when everything is good, only to disappear and abandon you when hardship and suffering comes. Nothing can separate you from his love. In fact, that's what he says as he concludes this chapter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is not one single thing in the entire scope of the universe that would be able to pry away God's love from you. Not one thing. Height nor depth. Death or life. Angels, powers. Nothing in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this truth has to be embanked upon our hearts. We can run all the more into his arms. Our faith can grow more and more. Our pursuit of Christ-likeness grows more intense and real. We become who we are. Think about how this truth helps us worship God. You can come and gather with God's people having the worst of weeks and still lift up your praise because you haven't been separated from his love. Yes, you you can fall and fail and you can come with a repentant heart and trust God all the more and you know that you won't be separated. You are not separated from his love. His love endures for you. Nothing can separate us from his love. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, do you feel this truth? Nothing can be against us if God is for us. Nothing, no one can condemn us. God is for us. Nothing can separate us from his love. God is for us. You have a completely secure, absolutely victorious, totally safe God who loves you. This is is God's definition and devotion of love for you. It's absolute, absolute, In Christ, he doesn't hold back one ounce of who he is for you. What are the implications of that? What does that mean that he has set his love on you? No one, no one can be against you. Or if they are, they don't even matter. You've got God in your corner. No one can condemn you. God has declared you righteous. He set his love on you. Nothing, not even one circumstance in your life can separate you from his love. Totally secure, absolutely loved, forever. Do you feel that? Do you know that? It should change absolutely everything in our lives. Friends, if you don't know Christ this morning, you might look at this and go, well, that's nice. And I would tell you it's true for you. It's a gift for you. If you would would trust Christ this morning, if you would turn from your sin and believe the good news that Jesus has come and lived on your behalf and died for your sins and was raised to life again, God's love set upon you in Christ. All you have to do is come to him today and trust him. This good news is for you. And friend, in Christ, believer in Jesus Christ, let's stand sure in the love of God. Let's push back the devil. Tell him off. Show him the love of God, for, of Christ, for us. And let's stand in the victory that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your deep and abiding love for us in Christ. You're for us. You've declared us righteous. You've forgiven us. You've justified us. You've demonstrated your love for us and it is a love that will never be taken away. Nothing can separate us from your love. So help us, help us to conquer our sin. Help us to conquer our our accusing hearts. Help us to worship and grow in you in every way because of your deep and abiding love for us in Christ. We thank you.